Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 71st episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I've been thinking a lot about remakes this week. I mean, almost every movie that comes out now is a remake of some old, or, or even not old, thing. I mean, how many Spider-Men have we had in the past 20 years? Not to mention, they're even remaking video games as movies now, from Rampage to Assassin's Creed to Monument Valley, an iPhone game, and I'm, I'm not sure how they're going to do that. Um, what we don't get a whole lot of are automotive remakes, though, which is kind of sad because there are a lot of tracks on many automakers' greatest hits albums that definitely deserve a replay. Volkswagen probably comes closest because they've resurrected the Beetle, and now the ID Buzz looks like a pretty faithful modern recreation of the original bus. There are a few other companies that have rolled out sort of retro-futuristic concepts, but so far none have really made it into production, which is a shame. But then, with some car makers, making new versions of the old cars is just sort of what they already do and have been doing. Like, my Mark 7 GTI is just the seventh generation of the classic Mark 1, and the model has evolved with each iteration, and, and the same can be said for every long-running model, from the Camry and Corolla to the Aston Martin DB11 or Mercedes-Benz SL. And while these modern cars and modern remakes are all good and fine, they, they lack the sort of period classic look and features of the old versions, and, and and those were what uh, those were part of what made them so special and memorable and at the time to begin with, uh, which is why probably uh, we see Aston Martin making the DB11, but also making the Goldfinger DB5 that I mentioned last week. It's a throwback design uh, with throwback safety equipment that sadly means it will not be road legal, which I found out after I posted last week's show. Um, the same is true of the Porsche Project Gold, which was unveiled this week at Pebble Beach. It's an air-cooled 993 Turbo S. It's actually Porsche's first air-cooled engine that they've made in 20 years. It makes a 450 horsepower that's put down through lovely black turbo twist wheels that cannot legally touch road pavement in the U.S. or Europe or any number of other countries with strict emissions, sound, or safety regulations. Uh, Longtime listeners will know that I'm a fan of regulation, typically. Uh, there are reasons rules exist for safety, emissions, and sound, and they're mostly to keep people alive and healthy, which are usually good things. That said, I can't help but wonder how bad it would be if automakers were allowed to produce, say, 100 or 150 cars each year that were faithful replicas of some of their older vehicles. Call them classic edition cars that didn't have to meet modern regulations to be registered to drive on the road. After all, they were legal at one time, and we allow people to smoke and drink even though those will kill you after a while, so why not give people a limited opportunity to own a car with vintage style if they acknowledge that these vehicles don't make modern safety ratings? I mean, have them sign a waiver or something. There are a couple problems with this I could see, though. I mean, one, owners of actual vintage cars will cry foul because the manufacturers are essentially making their cars less valuable by making newer versions of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cars aren't for collecting, they're for driving. Plus, your model year and VIN number will still keep its value for people who want that real aged-in patina to their leather seats or whatever. Second is what we're already seeing with automakers like Aston Martin, Jaguar, or Porsche who recreate old vehicles. 
they sell for prices that are, quite simply, bananas. Uh, the Goldfinger DB5 was $3.8 million. The re-released Jaguar D-Types last year, or earlier this year, cost $2 million. And this Porsche Project Gold is going to auction, uh, but I think you can see where I'm going here. Even if these classic editions make it to market, they'll never even approach a point where they're remotely affordable by us peasants. But you know what? Still do it. Because I'd rather live in a world where I can drive around and see cars that look like they're from the 1960s driving around than one where they're all shoved in the back of an airplane hangar or in a climate-controlled storage facility somewhere because driving's too dangerous to its value. Uh, Donald, I know you listened to this podcast during one of your daily diarrhea fits, undoubtedly brought on by your late-night quarter pounder or and filet of fish cram sessions. If you want to make America great again, then maybe think about making some exceptions here and there to make our roads pretty again. I mean, after all, you're all about deregulation, and I think I've found you a perfect place for you to work on. Here's your top story. This week was the Monterey Car Week and the Concours d'Elegance in California, where the weather is beautiful except for when it's on fire, which part of it is, but fortunately not along the central coast where there were hundreds of immaculate cars showcased. I'm going to have to make it out there sometime, but since I haven't, go check out Autoblog or any other number of sites with massive galleries of all the amazing cars on display this week. One of which was the 1970 Ferrari 512S Modulo concept, which looks just about as close to a spaceship as I think a car ever has. Uh, in addition to the classics, several automakers brought along some new cars or concepts which I thought deserved their own special feature this week. Uh, the first was Infinity's Prototype 10, which follows the more classically styled Prototype 9 that the company brought to Pebble Beach last year. This one's also a single-seat racer in the styles of a 1950s-era race car, uh, but with Infinity's current styling language applied. Not only that, it's apparently sat upon the new, rigid, adaptable electric vehicle chassis that may underpin future Infinity EVs, giving it a much greater relevance than your run-of-the-mill concept. Of course, this will never, ever see production, and we don't know exactly what electric vehicle drivetrain it's driving it anyway, but man, it is pretty to look at. Um, another pretty silver single-seat electric racing vehicle showed off was the Mercedes-Benz EQ Silver Arrow, which, like the Infiniti, is a modern take on a classic race car. Unlike the Infiniti, it's a modern take on a specific race car, the 80-year-old Silver Arrow, a Mercedes that set a public road speed record of 269 miles per hour in Germany way back in 1938. Uh, also, unlike Infinity, we have performance figures figures for the EQ Silver Arrow, which lays down 738 horsepower uh, uh, with an 80 kilowatt hour battery that gives the car a respectable range of 250 miles. Um, but <laughs> I doubt you'd get that far with instant torque and more than 700 horsepower on tap. Um, while the Infinity will never see the light of day through a dealership's window, the drivetrain in this Mercedes very could easily slot into an AMG performance car in the EQ range, sort of like a rival to the Porsche Taycan or forthcoming uh, Tesla Roadster. Um, Audi was like, electric vehicles? Oh yeah, we do that too. So uh, they brought out their PB18 e-tron concept, which while having the worst name of the three electric concepts, also had the worst looking styling. 
not to say it's bad, but the Peanut Butter 18 didn't quite reach the high bar set by Infinity and Mercedes. Uh, it's not a single-seat racer, but rather a shooting brake-style two-seat wagony hatchback thing that uh, features Audi's recent trend of the front of their cars being 100% grill, despite the fact that electric cars do not need grills. Uh, it also beats Infiniti by having a real powertrain, a 95-kilowatt-hour battery, powering three electric motors, putting out a combined 671 horsepower and 612 pound-feet of torque, accelerating the car to 60 in just over two seconds. Um, it's apparently good for a range of 310 miles on a single charge. This thing looks like it's straight out of Blade Runner or Minority Report. It's very, very futuristic, and I think we're in for a very exciting time in car design if these new looks are actually implemented in future production cars. Now, it wasn't all electric cars, though, uh, as Lamborghini, who uh, say they haven't found an electric motor violent enough to put in their cars yet, unveiled the Aventador Super Veloce Jota, or SVJ. Um, while only 30 horsepower more than the already powerful Aventador S, um, how much more power do you really need than the SVJ's 759 horses and 531 foot-pounds of torque? Uh, it comes from a no-doubt throaty 6.5-liter V12 and drives all four wheels, which also feel, feature four-wheel steering combined with active aerodynamics to make the car especially agile. Of course, it has set a Nürburgring record at some time faster than people. Uh, it's totally meaningless. Um, it's lower, it's stiffer, it has more downforce, and it's faster than the Aventador S, which means it will be absolute hell to drive around anywhere that isn't an immaculate racetrack. But I'm sure that isn't going to stop some pharma bro or tech entrepreneur from trying. After all, they can afford the chiropractic that this would create the need for. Uh, not to be outdone, Ferrari brought along a new car as well, or rather a convertible version of a car we've previously seen. Uh, it's the Ferrari 488 Pista Convertible. It's the same as the coupe with a twin-turbo 3.9-liter V8, churning out 711 horsepower and 568 foot-pounds of torque. But with the top down, the car is 0.4 seconds slower to 124 miles per hour than the coupe, taking a whole 8 seconds which I know will probably be a deal-breaker for just so many people. Uh, on the more affordable end of the spectrum, the new BMW Z4 M40i was unveiled with a sharp frozen orange metallic paint job, and it's quite a dashing-looking vehicle. Uh, of course, we've seen virtually every part of this car by now, so the complete package isn't, isn't really a surprise. Uh, what will be a surprise are performance figures, which uh, have been embargoed until September 18th, which is obnoxious. Um, it's apparently quick enough to get to 60 in less than 4 seconds, though, so draw your own conclusions about this car and its Toyota Supra-sibling from there. Sibring. Um, back to the extreme end of the spectrum, SSC, uh, one-time makers of the fastest car in the world, surprised everyone by bringing a new car to Pebble Beach this year. Called the Tuatara, the SSC has worked with Nelson Racing Engines to build a 5.9-liter flat-plane crank twin-turbo V8 flex-fuel engine. And this is where it gets a little special. If you run this car on E85 gasoline, it will make 1,750 horsepower. If you only have access to 91-octane dino juice, it'll only make, only in quotes, 
1,350 horsepower. While we have no idea how fast it will actually go when those ponies kick in, it does apparently have a super low drag coefficient of just 0.279, which uh, slightly worries me that it doesn't have enough downforce, which you might want when your car is approaching 2,000 horsepower. Um, the car is not desperately pretty, and it's painted in a sort of matte primer color, but the point of this car is that number. The reason you would buy one of the 100 they're supposedly going to make and have been saying they're going to make for seven years now is that number. And the reason the police report will cite when it finds your body in three different locations in two different counties will also be that number. Uh, finally debuting this week was the Bugatti Devo, which we've been uh, getting so many teasers for. It just seemed like Bugatti wanted to whip a dead horse and they whipped it real good. Uh, but for good reason, the Devo, based on the Chiron, is a beautiful car and was shown with uh, very fetching teal color accents. It's 77 pounds lighter than the Chiron, generates almost 200 more pounds of downforce, and touches 236 miles per hour if you have a place where doing that is possible. Uh, instead of just raw speed, this car was built with cornering in mind and is named after French racing driver Albert Devo, who raced a Bugatti to two Targa Florio wins in the 1920s. It's uh, much more attractive than the Chiron, which is saying something, and probably worth all of the $5.8 million it would take to buy one because it's only going to appreciate in value. Oh, and if you're thinking of saving for one, don't bother because all 40 are already sold, uh, because there are way too many rich people in this world, and I'm not one of them. Which brings us to the auctions. No Monterey Car Week is complete without a few ridiculous vehicle sales, and this year was, of course, no different. Um, one of the special cars that went up for sale was a 1987 Porsche 959 Comfort, which is one of those homologation specials we talk about. Basically, just a car that was produced in road-going form just so the company could make a race car version of it to dominate, which Porsche did in Group B racing. Uh, there were only 249 959 Comforts ever made, so this was always going to bring a lot of money. Uh, unfortunately for the owner of this vehicle, the trailer carrying it disconnected from the car towing it, and the 959 plowed straight into a tree on the trailer, and the owner just decided to sell it that way. So, yeah, there is a very, very totaled-looking Porsche 959 auctioned off. And you know how much it sold for? $467,500. Amazing. I'm, I'm sure the buyer has some plans for it that don't include leaving the tree-shaped damage in the front end. But, man, I could, I could spend $470,000 a lot differently. Uh, but the real star of the auction was the 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO being sold by Greg Witten, who is an early Microsoft employee who invested very, very wisely. Uh, only 36 of this vehicle were ever made, and this particular 250 GTO is one of four upgraded by Scaglietti and one of only seven to have had a more aggressive coach-built body designed by Pininfarna, making it lower, wider, and shorter than other 250s. Um, so you can imagine that this sold for a bit more than the 467k that the crashed Porsche fetched. And yeah, it did. Uh, 48.8 million worth of okay, uh, making it the most expensive car ever to sell at auction. 
Amazingly, that's not even the most expensive Ferrari 250 GTO ever sold, as last year, a 1963 model sold in a private sale for $70 million, with another going in 2013 for $52 million. So it just goes to show you can get a better deal at an auto auction. You just may have to widen your definition of deal. Changing your mind isn't inherently a problem. In fact, I do it all the time, whether it's where to go to dinner, if I think I can get away with buying a new camera, or what home project to tackle next. I change my mind all the time, and it's mostly innocuous, but the same cannot be said for Elon Musk. This week, he changed his mind, roughly three weeks after floating the idea of taking Tesla private using money he had not secured, despite a tweet indicating so. Uh, his public reasons for the reversal include giving up too much control to large investors, losing too many small investors who believed in the company, and becoming a distraction to the company while it strives to meet production goals. Well, uh, a little too late on that last one, but I guess the others make sense. It came out this week that the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which Musk cited as being the source of his secured funding, may have wanted Tesla to start producing cars in Saudi Arabia, which Musk objected to. Uh, instead, uh, the investment fund is going to dump some cash on Tesla competitor Lucid Motors, going quickly from friend to foe for Elon. Uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, another source of potential funding, dropped a sick burn this week, indicating that they had no intention of investing in Tesla because, quote, we want to be invested in companies that make money, end quote. Damn, Norway, you ice cold. Uh, coming out and saying, uh, well, just kidding, however, doesn't get Elon off the hook from the SEC investigation that launched in the wake of his tweet that sent the company's stock into chaos, which makes it all a pretty bad time for Tesla's communications chief to quit, which she has. Um, it's allegedly been planned for a while now, which I can understand because Elon has been tweeting for a while, and as a communications professional myself, I would find it incredibly frustrating to have my efforts continually undermined by my boss's incessant, unapproved social media activity. Uh, on top of all this, investment bank UBS published the details of their teardown of the Model 3, which concluded that for every $35,000 model that Tesla sells, they will be losing almost $6,000. Bearing in mind that that base model car isn't being produced yet because the company is focused on more profitable models, it's unclear how UBS came to this conclusion, but the rest of their report wasn't exactly glowing either. They found the car scored below average on fit and finish quality and stated the car would be pretty difficult to work on if something went wrong because of part inaccessibility. Finally, according to documents obtained by Business Insider during the last week in June when Tesla built 5,000 Model 3s, only 14% of the cars that made it off the line without a production problem that needed fixing afterwards. That means that Tesla had to rework 4,300 of those 5,000 cars to get them in shape enough to deliver to buyers. Compare that with an industry average of 20 to 35% rework, an 86% rework rate is absolutely unsustainable for a company yet to turn a profit. The only positive here is that the company spent on average only 37 minutes making the necessary fixes to each car. But do the math with me here. 37 minutes times 4,300 4, cars 
is 2,651 hours of extra work. That's 110.5 days, meaning 3.7 people had to work every hour of every day of June just to fix the problems in the cars coming off the line. I'm sure Elon would agree that those 3.7 employees' time could be put to better use, even if, as the company stated in a response to the documents, the Model 3 labor hours have decreased 37 or 30% since last quarter. Maybe just increase those a bit and see if you can make more than 700 complete cars, guys. Um, a survey of 1,250 consumers by Cox Automotive this week found that the cost of owning or leasing a vehicle was becoming too high, and fully 57% of respondents said that they didn't think they needed to own a vehicle to get where they wanted to go anymore. Vice President of Research uh, at Cox, Isabel Helms, said that they are predicting a 40% reduction in consumer vehicle sales as people start to use ride-sharing, ride-hailing, and rental services more often, highlighting the need for fleet-owned vehicles. Uh, survey respondents highlighted Uber and Lyft as propelling the movement away from private vehicle ownership, and ride-hailing, even in suburbia, was up 21% compared with 2015. Uh, also being up in cities, 18%. Uh, and everybody is feeling the effects of ride-sharing. Whether in New you're in New York, whose city council voted to cap the number of ride-share drivers, or in Seattle, where the local Department of Transportation found this week that an additional 94 million miles were driven on local roads last year because of ride-sharing services. Whereas most common refrain here is that ride-hailing services encourage people to drive less, they're actually making traffic much worse, compelling people who might otherwise walk, stay home, or take public transit to instead clog the street with a driver who has to come get them, drive them somewhere, then come back and get them, and then drop them off later. And if you're thinking we've reached peak car and that ride-sharing and hailing services are going to take over, please allow AAA to change your mind with their recent study that found that replacing your car with these services is a tremendously bad idea. According to the survey, the average urban person drives around 11,000 miles per year. Uh, using a ride-hailing service to cover that distance would cost urbanites more than $20,000 annually on average. In expensive cities like Boston, that rises to around $27,500, or more than the cost of buying my GTI outright. Uh, the survey found that if you owned a gas, even if you owned a gas-guzzling pickup and covered the same distance, you'd spend just $7,321 a year, or almost a third of what you'd spend on Uber. Even factoring in parking only adds $2,700 to the annual cost of ownership. Uh, the caveat here, of course, is that people without a car might not always go out or travel as much, and they might not use Uber or Lyft for each journey. But you'd have to sacrifice a lot of trips in order to break even uh, with what a car costs to own and run. Put more simply, always drive. Um, the Wall Street Journal this week reported that car dealerships are having a tough time finding p young people in their 20s and 30s who want to work long shifts and on the weekends to haggle with people to try to get a sales commission. According to the article, many millennials say car dealers have an outdated approach to selling that doesn't always fit with their values, even if the jobs have the potential to pay well. People of my generation also want more stable pay rather than commissions because of student debt. Student debt's reliable, commissions not necessarily so. 
they cite the bait-and-switch advertising that conf- and, and the confrontational haggling as reasons to quit, which a staggering number of them are doing. While nearly 60% of dealership hires are millennials, more than half of them quit within a year. It's so bad that Nissan reported a 100% turnover rate at its dealerships last year. While that doesn't mean that everyone quit their job, it does mean that multiple people quit the same job within the same year to make up for those company men who wouldn't leave and just want to know what they can do to get you into the car of your dreams today. Guess what? It isn't a Versa or Murano, Cliff. Sorry. Uh, You may recall earlier this year I advised uh, waiting on buying a used car because there was a glut of vehicles hitting the market and that huge supply was going to mean some tremendous steals to be had, especially on slow-selling sedans. Uh, Well, maybe there's a reason this podcast isn't your number one source for solid consumer advice. Uh, Turns out, whereas used vehicle prices usually peak in March and April, 2018 is proving to be a different beast, with used car prices actually increasing this summer, and there's a variety of reasons for this. First, consumers are scared off uh, by tariffs increasing the price of new cars, so they're shopping used instead, even if the tariffs aren't necessarily hitting yet. Second, incentives for new cars are flat, so buyers aren't finding too many good deals out there, so they're resorting to buying used cars, driving up demand. Also, since the Great Recession meant so few cars sold from 2008 to 2011, there aren't many cars from those years available on the used market, meaning most used cars for sale are newer, thus commanding a higher price. This is actually producing a historic difference with July's used vehicle value index ending at its highest point ever, up 1.5% over June and a full 5% over July 2017. So you want more consumer advice? Just panic. Cause a pure, unadulterated panic because trade wars are hard to win and easy to lose. In keeping with the news that cars are getting more expensive is a study by the Energy Information Administration that found that owners are now hanging on to their cars longer than ever before. In fact, the average age of in-use vehicles last year climbed to 10.5 years, up from 9.3 years in 2009. The increase in age actually took place across all vehicle categories, too, with pickups seeing the highest increase, from, with an average of uh, 12 years in 2009 to 13.6 years as of last year. Also correlating with this is the fact that consumers are now spending more on vehicle repairs and maintenance, since it's often cheaper to keep a used car running than it is to pay for a new one. What doesn't help is that these old cars are now much less fuel-efficient than newer vehicles, also costing owners more. To that point, a survey by Autolist uh, of 1,132 current car shoppers found that 41% of respondents disagreed with Donald Trump's proposal to freeze fuel economy standards, with a further 30% being on the fence about it. Half of respondents also wanted California to retain its authority to set its own emission standards, so despite the current trend towards SUVs and trucks, apparently people like the idea of fuel economy, but uh, maybe it's just not for them. Um, the news that I am planning on selling my motorcycle won't be new to longtime listeners, but part of the reason I'm selling is because this time of year is the absolute worst to get out there and have a hot engine between your legs. Uh, I'm one of those all-the-gear-all-the-time guys who doesn't care to have my skin peeled off by the road surface if something goes wrong, 
which means I'm wearing Kevlar jeans and body armor, which gets really, really hot when it's 90 degrees, sunny, and humid out. Well, for whiny people like me, a company called uh, Fahir has come along with uh, their recently unveiled ACH-1, which they call the world's first self-contained air-conditioned motorcycle helmet. It's a full-face model that actually plugs into the battery on your bike via a long cord that you can snake down your jacket or via a battery pack. Um, that uses the same sort of tech that car makers use to make cooled seats, delivering filtered, cooled air throughout the helmet without somehow giving you brain freeze. Um, the company says it can keep your head at 10 or 15 degrees colder than the out outdoor ambient air temperature, which is pretty significant. Comfort doesn't come cheap, though, and at $600, a moderately colder skull isn't going to persuade me to keep my triumph. Um, way back in 1967, Ford built a Mustang Shelby GT500 EXP prototype, and that was uh, supposed to serve as the model for the 1968 Mustang California Special. This one-off prototype was the only GT500 hardtop coupe ever built by Shelby and factory equipped with dual quad carburetors and a supercharger. Uh, the car was nicknamed Little Red and was mysteriously lost after production, and only resurfaced this week in North Texas after being missing for 50 years. Uh, intrepid researchers managed to track down the car using its Ford VIN rather than the Shelby serial number and found the current owner who had been keeping it on a lot for 20 years. Um, now the guys who want to restore it uh, also want to piece together the rest of the car's history and just how it managed to go missing for so long. They've even started a website shelbyprototypecoops.com to help crowdsource information. So if you happen to know anything, uh, go contribute. Uh, in other lost car news, a vintage car dealer is claiming that his customized 1955 Mercedes-Benz 300 SL Gullwing was stolen from a parking lot near the Nürburgring recently, and it's worth more than $1.9 million, according to him. Uh, the dealer isn't just sitting around, though. He's offering almost $300,000 in reward money, to motivate people to go out and find the car for him. Uh, this could include the thief, who could make a cool 300k just by saying he found it somewhere near the Autobahn. Uh, unfortunately, this thing has probably already been chopped and parted out, because we can't have nice things in this world. Um, if you've watched any documentary about World War II, you'll probably know that Hitler was a pretty innovative guy and was constantly looking for crazy new ways to kill lots of people. Uh, one of those things uh, that the Nazis looked into was weather control, with, which, along with uh, many other things, didn't, didn't really pan out for them. But here we are, 80 or so years later, and Volkswagen are at it again, trying to control the weather around their plant in Puebla, Mexico. Um, the company has been using anti-hail cannons that fire off loud shockwaves that theoretically break up hailstones before they can form, which would prevent the cars uh, leaving the factory from getting damaged. Now, there's absolutely no evidence to support that these things actually do anything more than just made obnoxious booming sounds whenever there are clouds, but that hasn't stopped neighboring farms from suing Volkswagen, claiming that the cannons are stopping rain from reaching their fields. Either fed up with the lawsuit or the fact that these things are bogus and useless, Volkswagen has stopped using them protect to protect their precious Jettas. Uh, here's an idea. It sounds like you're getting a lot of sun. Uh, install some solar panels over the parking lots to protect the cars and generate some extra power from the plant. 
that one's free. I usually charge by the idea. Um, good things to do in San Francisco include uh, riding the trolley, eating some sourdough bread, visiting Lombard Street, and buying a sweatshirt because you didn't think someplace could be so incredibly cold in the summertime. Um, bad things to do include getting your buddies to shut down traffic on the Bay Bridge so you and your homies can rip some sick burnouts and donuts on the closed highway. Uh, for inconsiderately wasting a ton of people's time on Sunday morning last week, one man in a white Mustang, of course, uh, was arrested while another Mustang, of course, and a Mark III Supra driver miraculously got away. Um, how? Oh, <laughs> maybe because they were blocking traffic, preventing the cops from getting to them? Honestly, what's more curious to me is how the Mustang driver managed to get caught. How long do you have to be doing burnouts on a closed highway in a major city before the cops show up? Come on. Now for some new cars that aren't from Pebble Beach. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless it's brand new. You might see me in my whip with my head. First up this week is a pretty wild refresh to the Hyundai Elantra, which I thought looked fine before. Now, though, uh, no. <laughs> it looks like they took the old model of Ford Focus, the one with the triangle headlights, uh, made the front all grill as the, as the trend du jour, and then stretched it back so it looks like it's being sucked into a black hole that you can't see. Uh, the whole car just looks like it's ready to cut you. And, like, it's sharp enough that if you took any one element off, you could probably impale your foe, which I think will be great for all those Russian dash cam videos of Road Rage that are on YouTube. Um, they can now become, like, epic fencing matches using Hyundai Elantra headlights and grill inserts. Um, other than the new looks, it's basically the same car with a 2-liter 4-cylinder making 147 horsepower and a slightly smaller 1.4 turbo making 128 horsepower. The Elantra Sport, which is the car you should get, has 201 horsepower and still the same body as the unrefreshed model, um, though they are going to get to it later this year. So if you hurry, you can still grab a fast one that doesn't look like it hates you every time you look back at it when you park. Um, while we were busy having all the really pretty cars line up for pictures in Central California, over in Russia this week they were having the Army 2018 International Military Technical Forum in Kubinka. Um, the two events don't really have a whole lot in common, except for the fact that both featured the unveiling of a concept car. I mean, Pebble Beach had several. The Army Forum only had one, and it was actually produced by Kalashnikov, the makers of the infamous AK-47 assault rifle. Uh, this isn't actually Kalashnikov's first attempt at building a car, because they made the catchy-named IZH-21252 Combi between 1973 and 1997. Uh, the new vehicle they just unveiled is all-electric, yet still rides on the same chassis as their old car first built 45 years ago. Uh, yeah. Um, nevertheless, the company spokesperson Sofia Ivanova said uh, they are aiming directly at Tesla with this retro-styled 90-kilowatt-hour vehicle that hits 62 in 6 seconds and will go 217 miles on a single charge. Like the AK-47, I think their aim is a little off on this, though, because if they think they can square up to Tesla, since th there isn't a single metric in which this car is remotely as good as anything from Elon's factory, I doubt it. 
Regardless, it certainly looks neat, and if they can get their act together and produce a neat electric vehicle, I will gladly be looking out for it to burst in flames on future Russian dashcam videos on YouTube. Uh, finally this week, a uh, call to action. On uh, Monday, an older lady driving a red pickup truck crashed through a guardrail and into the Long Beach Marina. Uh, trapped in her car, she and her son and her dog began to sink rapidly. Uh, fortunately for them, bystanders jumped into action, leaping to the vehicle to save both people and the dog, getting them to safety just as the pickup turned shiny side down. A video of the event captured by the captain of a nearby boat showed no hesitation by strangers to help out people in need in a potentially devastating incident. So this week, I'm not asking you to dive off a pier to help someone, but rather just thank a stranger for doing something nice for you. Uh, reading the news, it can certainly feel like we're quickly devolving into a tribalistic culture of constant conflict, so it's on us to do nice things for others and to reward those who do nice things for us. I think together we can foster a, a greater peace between all of us, no matter what ideologies divide us. So thank you for listening. Thanks to you, Nicholas Falcon, for our intro song. I leave you this week with the sounds of the Kalashnikov CV-1 concept. Truly a new electric car for the people, by the people. All right, we're going AK. Just kidding, here's a Corvette, because America! Yeah.